you turn over to Matthew 5, we find ourselves basically in, in verses 17 through 20. And I just want to read for us and kind of review. We've been away from it uh, a couple weeks. And I thought this morning I'd come up here and say, well, open your Bibles. I'm going to quote the book of Revelation. But I, I don't have the mental capacity nor the voice to do that. So <laughs> it's not going to happen. But uh, if we look back at our study in Matthew chapter 5, um, beginning in verse 17, follow along the Bibles as I read this for us so we kind of understand where we're at in the text. Uh, Jesus is speaking and he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This is our text for this morning. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, just a way of review, kind of just to, to warm up our hearts to where we've been, we've been looking at Christ and the law, and we're kind of the third part of this kind of continuing message. And last time we we basically looked at the preeminence of Scripture, in other words, the importance of Scripture. And we said that it was basically authored by God, it was affirmed by the prophets, and it was also accomplished by Christ. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And just to remind us that the Jews of Jesus' day were waiting for someone to come along who would basically take away all the rules and the regulations that they had to deal with. Because they looked at God's law as it was given, and they said there's nobody that can keep all these laws. It's, it's impossible. So the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day said, well, let's make them a little easier for people to follow. So they started to create their own law. And it's known as the oral law. The, the oral traditions and, and things of men. And what they did is they come up with all sorts of things. And we had covered them in the past couple of weeks. Things like, you know, you, you can't heal on the Sabbath and all sorts of crazy things that they came up with. Part of God's original law, but they just thought they'd make it easier. And so they came up with their own kind of rules of regulations. You know, that's kind of what we do today a lot of times. You know, we look at God's law and say, well, we can't do that, but let's just come up with our own set of rules and regulations. And, uh, uh, you know, we can keep that at least. And so you would think that that would make it um, somewhat, you know, easier. But it's actually a harder thing because God doesn't look at what's performed on the outside, right? He looks at our heart. He's more interested in what's going on in our heart than necessarily, you know, how many of his laws we're able to keep. Not that the law is not important. It is. But they took the law and they basically brought it down a rung and they made it the oral traditions of men. And so Jesus came and he had to tell them over and over again. And he says that in verse 18, he says, truly, absolutely. He says, I am not here to replace the law. I'm not here to abolish the law. It's permanent. He says, until heaven and earth passed away, not the jot or the tittle, the smallest little portion of the Greek alphabet. Okay. It's not going to pass away from God's law. That's how important it was. That's how permanent the word of God is. You know, we hear a lot today about the Bible being relevant to our hearts today. Well, it was written so many years ago, you know, it's not really relevant today. You can't assume that we'll just read it and apply it to our lives. 
Well, either it's God's word or it's not. It's that simple. There's no in-between. You can't pick and choose what parts of the Bible you want. You don't. And so, as we embrace God's word this morning, we pray that through the Holy Spirit, he would teach us and enable our minds to learn and our hearts to be open to what he has for us here this morning. But we really believe that there's an importance to Scripture. That's why whenever anyone stands or comes and speaks in the, in the church, even if it's a missionary or a guest speaker, they're always relating it to God's Word. We want this to be the central part. That's why we stand up in the morning and read Scripture. Okay, It's not just something to do every Sunday. Well, we've got to fill this time slot, so uh, I guess we'll just read some Scripture and have the people stand. That sounds like a good churchy thing to do. We don't do it for that. We do it to honor God's Word because we have a high view of God, and therefore we have a high view of His Word. And so it's permanent. And we looked at that. And he, he, Jesus went on and he says, until all is accomplished. All right? All is taking place. Jesus confirmed the accuracy, the authenticity of the Old Testament in all of his writings, basically. And we see that. He also made clear that Scripture was given to lead men to salvation. That's why the Law and the Prophets was given. It wasn't just given as a list of do's and don'ts. That's how we look at it. But really, God gave us the law so that we could look at it and say, who could do this? I can't do this. There's no way I could ever do that. And he says, exactly. That's exactly where I want you. See, that's where we have to be in our heart before God, before he can, like the song says, our God saves. Before he can save us, we have to what? Recognize our need for what? A Savior. See, the problem with our world today is everybody thinks that they're all sufficient to themselves. They don't need anything. Very independent spirit. Oh, we don't need that. We don't need... No, I'm just going to do it all by me. Well, when it comes to God and it comes to salvation, brothers and sisters, if you're trying to do it on your own, you're barking up the wrong tree. It's not going to happen. God says very clearly in His Word over and over again, you know what? There's none that is righteous. No, not even one. Some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, you know, that's almost insulting to me. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a moral person. I'm this, I'm that. Hey, you know what? We all think we're something in our own eyes. And that's fine. I'm just telling you what God says. God says we've all sinned and we fall short of His glory. Every one of us. And so if we're falling short of God's glory, how do we obtain that righteousness and that faith that God wants us to have. It's only through Christ. It's only through Christ. You're not going to get it by coming to church here. You're not going to get it by joining another church or, or praying or any of those things. It's not by religious activity that we do that God looks at us and says, oh, you're doing more. You're praying more. I'm going to like you more. We don't serve that kind of God. He likes us in spite of ourselves. He likes us. He loves us in spite of our sin. He loves us in spite of what we do or what we don't do. In Christian circles, we call that God's grace, God's mercy. And praise God for it. Because if it wasn't for His grace, if it wasn't for His mercy, all of us would basically, you know, be uh, getting nice suntans in hell, okay? Our sun burns, I should say. It's not going to be, uh, uh, you know, there's not a, a nice place to go to if we're outside of God's grace, outside of God's mercy. The Bible speaks of a place called hell and its utter torment. And yet, somehow, men today have convinced themselves, well, you just die and you 
I mean, just your body just goes to the ground or you get burned up or whatever you're going to do with your body, and then it's just over. Well, it's not. The Bible speaks of eternal life. The Bible speaks of a life after this one. You know, we're all going to live forever. Everyone. Not just Christians. We're all going to live forever. The question is, where are you going to live? If you've come to Christ for your, for, as your Savior for your salvation, and you put your faith and your trust solely in Him, then you're assured a place in heaven with God. A place that is just too incredible to describe. A place where the very presence of God dwells. All your sins are wiped out. You're, you're made new. That creaking old body that you're dragging around here on earth is going to be made new. But if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, you're still going to live. It's just in a place that the Bible refers to as hell. And it's not a fun place. You're not going to be down there partying with your buddies. It's a place of utter darkness. It's a place where you'll be totally alone by yourself forever and ever. Not only that, but you'll be facing torment that is just too brutal and too incredibly hard to even explain. Says you'll be burned, but you the body won't burn up. You ever been burned? Just a little bit? Maybe some of you burned when you were cooking your turkey. I almost did. I was bringing it over here at the last minute, and I reached in the uh, thing, and one of the mitts fell off, and I grabbed the little thing, and I picked it up, and I was like, ah! almost dropped it. And uh, I didn't, though, so it was fine. You know, we got here fine with the turkey and everything. I was a little shaky, but we, we got the turkey here, you know. And uh, But, you know, if you've ever been burned, you understand what that feels like. Just a little burn. Can you imagine being burned continuously, forever, and yet never being burned up? That's what the Bible speaks, that hell is like. Well, today, I want to look at not only the idea that, that there's a authority of Scripture, but I also want to look at the, the relevance of Scripture. In verse 19 of our text in Matthew 5, Jesus says that whoever then annuls one of these, of the, of these commandments and so teaches others, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We live basically in a day and age that everyone has this idea that we can just do our own thing. You see it in the church, you see it outside the church. It's really kind of a day in which even ancient Israel experienced. It's nothing new. Back in Judges 21-25, the attitude was in that day, basically in the time of the judges, it said everyone did what was what? Right in his own eyes. That's the day and age we live in today. You know, the world said, well, there's no such thing as sin. And even churches are saying, well, there's no such thing as sin. You know, we just want to call them mistakes. Uh, there's this rejection of authority across the board. Nobody likes to deal with authority. No one wants somebody else making rules and holding us accountable to them. And really, when you stop and you think about it, what that leads to, ultimately, in general, is a breakdown of the home, a breakdown of school, a breakdown of church, government, everything, society in general, and eventually it will lead to anarchy when you don't have any authority. I mean, even in a lot of churches today, they, they don't like authority. So they don't have church discipline because they don't want to discipline somebody who's sinning because they may give a lot to the church and if they discipline them, they may leave the church and take their giving with them and oh, God forbid that would happen. 
And so it's even crept into our churches today, this idea of just doing your own thing. And I think sometimes in the name of grace and love and forgiveness that we just sin and we excuse it and we just say, it's not important. We live in an age of grace. That's fine. Some Christians think that basically God's grace covers every offense a believer can ever commit, which it does. And because of that fact, there's no need to bother about holy living. You know, you don't have to worry about living a righteous life because all your sins are forgiven. You ever heard that? Let's just go out and sin more. Because it's forgiven, right? Who cares? Well, the Bible speaks to that. And the Bible says, may it never be. We don't want to have that kind of attitude. Some even argue that because the sinful flesh is, is unredeemed in its present corruption, and it's going to be done away with at glorification, it doesn't make any difference what we do with it now. So they're giving basically an open door to whatever goes on in our fleshly bodies. Is, it's okay. It's all covered under God's grace. Now, theologically, that may be true, but practically, we want to look at the implications of that. Because there's kind of a, a, a thing that we want to look at this morning that's, that's, you know, where does the law and where does God's grace, how do we put these two together? The question that most Christians would ask. Because the New Testament very clearly and plainly teaches that believers are free from the law, does it not? But what exactly is our freedom in Christ? What does that look like? In Matthew 5.19, that's what Jesus confronts this morning. He confronts that question, and he reaffirms really what that freedom cannot mean. Remember back in Matthew 17, he pointed out the, the law's preeminence because it's offered by God, affirmed by the prophets, accomplished by Messiah. And then in verse 18, he showed its permanence, that it's something that's not going to leave. It's not going to pass away. God's law is God's law. God's word and the souls of men are the only two eternal things on earth today. Everything else will be burned up. Sometimes we forget that. As we're out polishing our new car or, or buying new things or whatever, we forget that this is all going to burn up. You know, and, and the world creates this hunger and thirst for bigger and better. And, you know, and we all fall prey to that. I do. Ask my wife. He'll tell you. you know, I finally got a motorcycle. And, you know, it's a used one. Amen. That's right. Got my motorcycle, used one. I bought it from Buddy Chiflant, Connie's husband, and, and uh, I think it's 2000. And I thought, ah, this, this is like answer to prayer. My wife actually gave me the green light to buy this motorcycle. Did a little hesitation afterwards, but we worked through all that, you know. Did a list of things that, that I had to where and had to do and you know anytime i go on the motorcycle i have to inform her i'm going on the motor it doesn't matter if it's just you know pushing it down the driveway I'm, I'm sitting on the motorcycle now dear okay i mean it's ridiculous but anyway i said hey i got the bike right i'm willing to do whatever i need to do um but i remember after riding the bike for you know week or two weeks or whatever i'll go back by the honda shop I just you know and they're perusing around and i kind of wandered over to the new motorcycle I mean, I got a motorcycle, but it's the year 2000. And, you know, they got these new ones now. Look at these new ones. Oh, and, you know, I felt in my heart this, all of a sudden, this, this, okay, how can I get one of these new ones? I mean, I really like this one. This is good, but I, I want one of these. I want the latest model. And even yesterday, they had a big motorcycle shop or show in San Mateo. And somebody invited me to go, and I, I declined for that very reason. I thought, you know, I don't have the time, first of all. But secondly, I want to go there and see what I can't have. 
It's like torture. You know, so I thought, okay, but we all have that in us. We get something and then we want something more. That's just a bent that we have. And so it's very important as we look at this that we realize that, you know what, what's important as we look around us today? The souls of men, those are eternal. As we just said, we're all going to live. The question is a matter of where. And God's eternal word. Those are the two things that are going to last into eternity. And so we begin to realize, well, this is an important book. This is something that God gave us to learn and to grow by. And are we doing it due diligence? Are we learning the Word? Are we commending it to our hearts? And granted, we may not be able to memorize the book of Revelation like this guy did a couple of weeks ago, but surely we could memorize a couple of verses here. Surely we could hide parts of the Word of God in our hearts because it will change us. And that's where that change, that transformation comes from is through God's Spirit, through His Word as we apply it to our lives. But in verse 19, he declares the citizens of the kingdom are not supposed to diminish or even disobey his law, his word. That's kind of what he says. Verses 17 18 of 5, he says, hey, I didn't come to replace it. I didn't come to disobey it. I fulfilled it in every way, and, and I'm not here to replace it. In light of Christ's own attitude about the law and his response to the law, you have to stop and you say, well, what is Jesus teaching us now? Well, now he's teaching us what the attitude and response of his followers should be. Because he says, hey, here's what I did. I didn't come to, to replace it. I didn't come to fulfill it. Fulfill, or, or I came to fulfill it, not to replace it. And then in verse 19, he says, but whoever. So he switches it. He says, now let's talk about you guys. And I think he understands the, the consequences of obeying and disobeying God's word. Um, and, and we have to understand those consequences as well. Well, first of all, let's look at the character of the law, character of the law. You notice there in verse 19, he says, whoever therefore, or whoever then. And then he goes on with his statement. Well, that word there basically tells us everything Jesus just said about God's law is true. And you need to refer back to that. Have you ever gone into a conversation, in the middle of the conversation, and you're standing there and they're talking about something, and you have the slightest idea what they're talking about? I mean, it, you could really walk away with a bad impression of people if you didn't understand the context of their conversation, right? And so, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's basically telling us, make sure you read what I just said before you jump into this verse, because it's a foundation of everything I'm going to say. And what he's saying is, my law, my word, is pertinent to those who trust in because it is his word. It is the word of God. It's exalted by the prophets. It's accomplished by the Messiah himself. It's permanent. It's not going away whether you like it or not. Because this book is not just a collection of a bunch of men who sat down one day and said, hey, let's write some religious stuff and started writing. This is, we believe this to be the supernatural word of God. We believe it to be without error. We believe it to be eternal. We believe it to be everything that we should live and grow by in our Christian life. Someone uses the acronym Bible, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. That's what it is. It's God's basic instructions to us before we leave this earth. 
It's commands are not just suggestions for us to choose whether we want to or not, but the requirements that we need to follow. We want to be pleasing to God. He tells us how. And it's not difficult. You have to be willing to say, okay, God, show me. Because Scripture is given by God for man. Nothing could be more relevant to our lives than His revelation. Because the Word of God says that He knows everything about you. He knows what kind of personality you have. He knows what color your eyes are. He knows how many hairs are on your head or the lack thereof. He knows all that. He knows every detail about you. And what he's telling us this morning is, this book is important. Please hear what it says. It's not just a collection of man's writings. It's the very Word of God. And scripture basically is, you might say, the standard for relevance. It cracks me up when people say, well, the Bible's not relevant for today. Well, what is? What possibly could be more relevant? So it's the character of the law that, that makes it important to us, that makes us desire it, make, that makes us want to grow by it and commit it to our heart. Well, we also want to look at this morning the consequences of our response to God's law. You can sit here this morning and say, you know what? I don't, I don't believe anything you're saying. That's fine. That's your response to God's Word. I'm not up here just making stuff up. You know, we'll be looking at verses. We're going to be reading God's Word. That's His Word. It's not mine. And so, there's consequences to our response to what God has revealed to us. And it really depends, the consequence depends on what kind of response we have to it. Whoever responds to it positively, the Word of God says that you'll receive a positive result. If you respond to it negatively, it will receive a negative result. It's kind of like when you tell your children, Johnny, take out the trash. Well, your response to Johnny is really the consequence. What, what you're going to give him is based on his response to your request, right? If Johnny looks at you and says, no way I'm taking out the trash, Pop. Do it yourself. I would imagine that in most of you, that would conjure up a negative response to Johnny. <laughs> okay, you're not just going to go, okay, I'll do it myself. You know, as a parent, you're not going to allow your child just to walk all over you that way. Well, in the same way, if Johnny said, sure, Dad, and he grabbed the trash for the first time and he took it out, and he came back and says, Randy, what do you want me to do? You know, you're probably in your heart, hopefully, not going to take advantage of Johnny, as a matter of fact, I got a list here of a hundred things that you're going to do by the, the sundown. You know, you're not going to do that. You're, you're going to respond in a positive way. You're going to say, "Wow, thanks for listening, son. I really appreciate that." And you're going to have a positive interaction. Well, it's the same way with God and His Word. When we respond negative, there's a negative consequence. And He mentions here in verse 19 the negative first. You know, it's kind of like when someone you, you, you go into the doctor and he says, "Okay." You want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> I don't know about you, but usually I choose the bad news first. It's always better to get the bad news first, and you figure, well, there's at least some glimmer of hope, you know? And, and, and that's the same thing that God does here. He says, you know what, I'm going to tell you what's, what's the negative stuff first. And so he says there in verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of these, of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever annuls or whoever breaks, that word means. It's a common word in the New Testament. And it means to break or to set loose. Um, it means to really release from or even to dissolve, it can mean, or to melt. And the idea here is that the breaking away from or the annulling of God's law, you're wanting to make it void, you're loosening yourself from its requirements and its standards. That's kind of what he has in mind here. He's saying, you know, this doesn't apply to me. I'm just not going to go by that. That's who he's referring to. And he says, whoever does that, the idea here is, is really just kind of making it void in your life. Jesus uses this same word, kind of a different form of it, in verse 17 when he says, came not to what? Abolish the law and the prophets. It's the same word. It's a different, different form of it, but it has the same idea. He didn't come to loose himself from God's word or destroy God's word or to melt God's word away. He came to what? Fulfill it. See, fallen human nature, we resent the idea that people put kind of prohibitions and demands on us. It's just our nature. We have a bent toward that. Nobody likes to be told what to do. We just don't. And a lot of times, even Christians are tempted to look at God's standards and we modify them as the Jews did, and we weaken And because of maybe misunderstanding or whatever, believers find reasons to make God's commands less demanding than they are. See, but when a Christian really ceases to revere and to obey and to have a special part in their heart, place in their heart for God's Word, even in the slightest degree, he's really being un-Christ-like. And yet calling himself a Christian, because if we want to be Christ-like, we saw in the previous weeks what Jesus' view of the law was. It has absolute authority. He didn't come to disobey it. He came to obey it. He didn't come to you know, replace it. He came to fulfill it. So it was important to him. It should be important to us. Now, the Jews of the divided, divided God's law into two sections, basically. Two categories. The positive commands and the negative kind of like just boil this down. All right, there was 248 positive commands to God's Word. It's interesting that there was 365 <laughs> negative ones, one for every day of the year. This kind of interesting. And that made up God's law. And the scribes and the Pharisees would have these long, heated debates about which law in each category were the most important. And they'd sit around for hours on end. And they say, okay, well, this one's more important than this, and, and this one's not, this one's the least, and whatever. And, and really, you know, you say, well, it's all the same. No, it's not. Scripture itself makes itself clear that all of God's commands are not equal. They're not. Turn over to Matthew 22. Just a couple pages to the right there. Matthew 22. This is a lawyer among the Pharisees, and he was asking Jesus, which commandment was the greatest? He was implying, he was bringing that heated debate right to Jesus. Hey, let's go ask this guy. And in verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 37, after this lawyer asked him the question in verse 36, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? That's what everybody wanted to know. Jesus said to him, look what he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. So he answered the question. If they were all the same, he would have said, no, they're all the same. There's none greater than the other. But he didn't. 
He said, this is the first one. And then he said, and, and uh, this is the, the first and the greatest commandment. And the second, so he kind of numbers them, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he clearly, Jesus acknowledged that one commandment is supreme above all others and that there's a second in importance and all the other ones fall underneath that somewhere. He didn't list them all out there for us, but he gave us the top two. And really, if you stop and you think about it, if you're loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that's of premier importance in anybody's life. If you're doing that, and then you're loving your neighbor as you love yourself, pretty much that covers everything else. There's not a whole lot, if you don't do those two things, um, you're going to get away with it. Because it's just like a, a big umbrella. Turn over to Matthew 23. Here Jesus is giving a bunch of woes to the Pharisees, and he gives an indication that there's kind of an importance in the uh, order of these commands. In verse 23, Matthew 23, 23, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, then he calls them names, hypocrites. <laughs> and then he says this, For you pay the tithe of mint and arise in cumin and have neglected weightier matters of the law, such as, and he lists them there, justice, mercy, and faith. These you have ought to be doing without leaving the others undone. And so the tithing of herbs and whatnot, that was required, but you know what? There was something a little more important, things like being just, faithful. He clearly says they're spiritually more important than giving your little herbs that you grow in your herb garden. And see, his point here is not that you know, he's not here to in all the the, the, the the idea that they were to give this requirement of herbs. He wasn't saying that. He said, yeah, you should do that because that's what's required. But also, don't forget this. This is even more important. He says it's not permission, permissible for you to annul or to break or to ignore or modify even the least of these commandments. So some commands are greater than others, but none are to be disregarded. And that's kind of where they got all mixed up. In Acts 20, 27, Paul reminded the Ephesian elders that he was ministering to them. He said, he said that he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel or the whole purpose of God. In other words, he just didn't bring you know, what he wanted to bring. He brought the whole thing. The apostles didn't pick and choose what they would teach and they exhort. Uh, he stressed some things more than others, but he left nothing out. That's what he's saying here. So first of all, it's the person who breaks it or annuls it. The second thing there is the person who teaches others to disregard or to disobey any part of God's Word. That's even a worse offense. So it's one thing if you're just for your own personal self, you're taking God's Word and you're putting it on the shelf and you're saying, thank you, but no thank you, I'm just going to live my own life. Okay, that's, that's one kind of level here of a negative response to God's Word. The second level is that you're doing that and then you're going around telling people to do that. So it's kind of a second level of offense here. He who not only breaks the law himself, but calls others to break it as well. That's kind of intent on their heart. Um, and obviously, his disobedience was, would be intentional in that case. Um, see, it's impossible to break God's commands by being... Uh, I mean, it is possible by, by, to break God's commands by being ignorant or forgetting them or whatever, but to teach someone else to break them. Okay, that's one thing. 
All right, it'd be like if you were driving down Jefferson and you forgot the speed limit was 35 or whatever it is, and you were going 85, and you got a ticket. Okay, you would have broken the law, you would have deserved the ticket, right? But now, if you're in my car, and I'm driving, and you're sitting in the passenger seat, and you're saying, hey, go 85, it'll be fun, you know, and you're encouraging me to do the same thing that you just got a ticket for. Okay, you can't say, well, in that case, I didn't know the speed was, you know, I'm sorry, I was encouraging you to do something I didn't know. No, you wouldn't know. See, that's what he's saying. He's saying this person teaches others to openly disregard and disobey God's word. James in James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. See, as a teacher, whether you're teaching good or bad, you're going to be kind of judged as a basis of that. Every believer is accountable for himself. And for those who teach, they're also accountable. It's, it's important that we understand that. Um, Isaiah says, For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. He's talking about a prophet who teaches falsehood. And, you know, that's so important that we understand that, that we're held accountable to the standard of God's Word, not what you want to hear. It's not about what you want to hear every Sunday. That's not how I don't sit down every week and go, gee, I wonder what the people want to hear. I wonder what they'll like me if I preach this this week. Maybe they'll like me better. You know, I don't do that. I can't do that. My conscience won't allow me to do that. And nor should we. We're all teachers. You know that. We're all teachers in some way. I don't think Jesus' warning is simply for an official and formal teacher. Every person here teaches in some fashion. Every one of you. By our example, right? What are we living out before our children? What are we living out before other believers? What are we living out, you know, to the world around us that looks at us constantly because we wear the label Christian? Are we being a godly example? Are we being a Christ-like example? Are we teaching them the way to the cross? Are we teaching them the gospel through the way we live? Are we causing them to stumble? Do we speak reverently and lovingly of God's Word? Do we teach people love and respect for it? Do you do that with your own kids? Or is this just a personal thing that you do? I don't think so. Because they're watching you. They're watching how you interact. They're watching how you treat God's Word. They're, acting, they're, they're watching your motives for when you go here and when you go there and why you go there and here you serve and why do you serve there or whatever. They see that, plain and simple. They know your heart when you're slaving away in the kitchen or you're, you're vacuuming or whatever. You know, they can see it when you're home and, oh, jeez, I've got to go to church again. i got to do this. Oh, I just can't stand it. And then they see in front of everybody with a smile. Oh, praise God, yes. They see that. What are you teaching them? See, we need to be aware of that. We're all teachers in some way. Every one of us. When we ignore God's demands in His Word, we basically tell everybody, you know what? This book is unimportant to me. In Acts 20, 28, Paul reminded the elders of Ephesus that he had been faithful in teaching them God's full word. And then he warned them in Acts 20, 28-30. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He's telling this to the church there. I know that after my departure, here's what he says, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among their own selves, men will arise. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He said, this is what's going to happen. This isn't, you know, a guessing game. This will happen. And I think it even applies to us here today. As a body, we need to be on guard. It's not just the pastor or the elders or the deacons, whoever is a church official that has to guard the flock. We're all called to guard Christ's church. We're all called to protect it. The consequence of practicing or teaching disobedience to any part of God's Word, he says there in verse 19, what's the consequence? Well, you're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean to that? About that? I'm going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven? Some commentators believe that, well, that refers to what men say about us. They look at our testimony and go, hey, you know, I don't think that. But in education, that's what he's talking about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. I think what he's talking about is what God says about us. That's what matters. That's what really matters. God knows our heart. He sees why we obey Him, when we obey Him, if we obey Him, and our motivation in obey. He sees all of that. And what's He saying to that? See, our reputation among other people, whether they're Christian or not, may or not be adversely affected. It may or may not be. It depends how much they know of it. You know, I've, I've run into Christians and they say, well, I've never been persecuted for my faith. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe nobody knows you're a Christian. <laughs> I don't know. That's number one thing that pops into my head. But I think he's saying here that God is going to call them the least in the kingdom of heaven. See, often other people don't know about our disobedience, do they? We can hide it real well. Right here, I can hide my disobedience real well. I can hide my sins just like anybody else can. And you would never know what's in my heart. But you know what? God knows. God clearly knows. You know, this is why I really think, I mean, just a little side note here, you know, earlier years, not in this church, but in the church in general, there was this big kind of deal made about accountability and discipleship and all that stuff. And I think it's important. Okay? Discipleship, being accountable to someone, that's important. All right? But you know what? I can sit with somebody across the table at, over a cup of coffee and ask them hard questions. And they can lie to me. And you know what? They can ask me those questions. Have you thought any evil thoughts this week? No. I can lie to them too. I mean, all of our hearts are wicked and desperately evil, the Bible says. There's nothing good there. We think somehow that, you know, because we tell the truth once in a while, that, that makes us a saint. No, it doesn't. We're all called sinners. That's what we're called in His Word. And generally, we live that out. I would say we live up to our calling more than not as sinners saved by grace. Do we need accountability? Sure. Do we need discipleship? Sure. But you know what? We have to understand first and foremost that our our accountability, first of all, has to be to who? has to be God. God sees what goes on when no one else does. God sees what we're looking at on the Internet when no one else is there. God sees it. 
God sees the way we're interacting with people when we're really not even genuine. You know, we're being all smile-faced and inside we're like, get away from me, I don't even want to talk to you right now. God sees that. It doesn't please God. God's not into just us acting something we're not. I mean, can you imagine what kind of Sunday we would have if everybody came? And just for one Sunday, it was just the way they are. Not the way they're supposed to be in church. But can you imagine coming to church just the way that you're feeling? How are you doing today? Huh, you really want to know? Just got in a big argument with my wife in the car. Can you imagine that? The truth that would be spoken. And the vulnerability that would be there. And then also the time of ministering that would take place afterwards. I mean, it's, it's funny because we're all kind of prone to that because we're normal. Even last night, my wife called me, 5 o'clock, on the, on the cell phone. I'm down at Friday buying some sodas. Hauling the soda down. Kind of out of breath. Calls me on the cell phone. Put the sodas down. Yeah. Where are you? <laughs> what? What do you mean, where am I? You know? Well, you're supposed to pray. We're going to start. I'm like, I'm almost there. Well, what are you doing? I'm trying to explain it to her and oh, you know. So I walked in the fellowship hall. She, she saw me. I saw her. And it was just like, ugh. John was privy to this. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's, that's reality. That's life. You're not going to go up and, you know, let's give thanks for the meal. <laughs> See, that's where God's grace kicks in, brothers and sisters. He says, hey, you know what? Okay. I love you. And just patch it up. Hopefully before you eat. You don't even have any ingestion, <laughs> you know, which we did. It was fine. But I'm just saying that that's reality. Why can't we be more real about things like that? That's what God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to walk around with these cheery faces when we're not feeling cheery. Because we can't minister to one another unless we're being uh, real. It just won't happen. And so, are we concerned what other people say? Sure. But you know what? It's what God says. It's what God looks at. And that's why I think when he says here that we're, God knows that we're being, going to be called the least in the kingdom, and I think it's what God is going to call us. It's only that we are called by God that's any importance at all. <laughs> it should be the concern of every believer here this morning who loves the Lord that he will never, God will never look at us and call us the least. That's just not what we want to happen. And he says, you notice there that it's in the kingdom of heaven. It's, there's rank in the kingdom of heaven. And that's true. In Matthew 20, it talks about who's going to be on your right, who's going to be on your left. And Jesus declares basically that he'll hold those in lowest esteem, those who hold his word in lowest esteem. That's what he bases this on. There's no option for those who choose to disobey or discredit or belittle God's word. Now, I don't think he's referring to here, obviously, the loss of salvation, right? Because he says you're going to be called least, but you're going to be where? In the kingdom of heaven. And you might get there by the chin, 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 chin. But you're, you're there. All right? 
Second John, verse 8, John warns, he says, Watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. See, it's, it's possible to lose, and this is important to understand, it's really possible to lose in the second phase of our Christian life what we've built up in the first, just by disobedience. You know, you, you may have, you know, say you, you lived 10 years, in five years, you may do things for God that's just incredible. And you're earning up reward in heaven. Nothing to do with salvation. You're talking about reward. But he said, you know what? In the second five years, if you live like the devil and you just presume on God's grace and you disobey and dishonor God's word, well, you know what? You're going to lose the reward that you start out. And I think what, 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 what Jesus is telling us here is that be careful. You don't want to even disdain the smallest part of God's word. Because by doing that, it's kind of a you're demonstrating an attitude about the whole of it, because they're inseparable. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and that stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of what? All the law, right? And so to ignore or reject the least of God's law is therefore to cheapen all of it in his kingdom. You're still in his kingdom, but he's not going to consider you, you know, thereby in rank up there. And I think they we receive our our blessings and our treatment in heaven is the way we look at God's word. Are we being obedient to it? That's the negative consequence. You'll be called the least by God in the kingdom of heaven. The positive consequence, he goes on in verse 19, and he says, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice it doesn't say the greatest. <laughs> only one of those. Here again, Jesus mentions these two aspects of doing it yourself and also teaching others. And it's a positive way, just like you can negatively put God's word on the shelf and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And now I'm going to go around and teach other people not to have anything to do with it. That, that's kind of a, the severity of the situation. Well, the same thing here. He says, first of all, if you obey it yourself, as, as God's children, we're to uphold every part of God's law. Both in our living and in our teaching, the way we, we live it out. In second, or in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, Paul says this to the Thessalonians. He says, you are witnesses, and so is God. I love that. You're witnesses, but so is God, more importantly. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know, how we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul had been faithful to live and also to teach his word, God's word. And he'd, he'd done that in Ephesus and he'd done it in others as well. And it's important that we understand that God's moral law is a reflection of the very character of God himself. And that's why it's changeless. That's why it's eternal, because God's eternal. God's changeless. While God's people are still on earth, we don't reflect naturally the character of our Heavenly Father. And the standards that he has for us, these commandments, um, they have to be produced in us by the Holy Spirit. You are not to look at word, God's Word and go, okay, here's the ten top ten, got to do these. That's not what it's about. It's about our heart before the Lord. 
First Timothy chapter four, Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy: Prescribe and teach these things in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, purity. Show yourself an example to those of those who believe. And that's what we're called to do. Later on in chapter six, he says: Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you have been called. He tells them to flee certain things, and then he says, take hold of these things. We're supposed to put off the flesh, take on the Spirit. That's what we're called to do. Paul both kept and taught the full Word of God. That's what we're to do. It's not just a pastor's job. It's every Christian's job to do that. And then we'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So in the end here, really... We look at the clarification of the law. We know that most of the New Testament, the epistles, Jesus is speaking here of this is kind of God's permanent moral law. That's what he's talking about. When we went through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we saw. Every principle, every standard, it's also taught in the epistles and everything. So it's, it's timeless. It covers everything. Um, but there is basically a, a paradox here between the regard to the law and regard to God's grace. On the one hand, we're told of the laws being fulfilled and done away with, and on the other, we're, we're told basically that we're still obliged to obey it. And so it's kind of an important um, thing to discern here. In Ephesians chapter 2, when he was speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul says that Christ is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might take the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. See, when the church came into existence, that dividing law of civil judicial law, it crumbled, it disappeared. Because Christ put them together. Uh, the ceremonial law also came to an end, when you think about it. I mean, they still did it, you know, but it didn't have any impact. It wasn't for any good because Christ had already hung on the cross. He died. He was resurrected. That was it. He said it's finished. There was no need for that. But because of the religious misunderstanding, they continued to do that. It's just like us today. We continue to do that. We continue in our minds to sacrifice certain things and to think that somehow if we live a certain way that God will love us more. If we're in Christ, we're in Christ, beloved. You don't have one foot in, one foot out. But once you're in Christ, you begin to realize the importance of God's Word, and you want to do everything you can to live by it. Paul speaks of us not being under the law in Romans 16, but under grace. Or in Romans 6, excuse me. Romans 6, 14. And he, he continues there, and in verse 12 he says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its what? Lust. And then after four, verse 14 he says, What then shall sin Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? He says, may it never be. See, it's not an excuse for us to sin because God has given us grace. He's not holding us accountable to the law, but we're under grace. That doesn't give us the right to go out and do whatever we can to dishonor God's word. Those in Christ are no longer under penalty of the law. We're definitely free from the requirement of righteousness required by the law. And the only way we could get that righteousness is through who? Through Christ. 
Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And even Galatians 5.18, God calls Paul wrote, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not, what, under the law. So it's an important thing for us to come to terms with. That doesn't mean we can go out and do whatever we want. God's law is still His law. It's eternal. It's permanent. We need to make sure that we're having a positive response to it. That we're willing to get, we're willing to embrace it and say, God, whatever you want from me, you know, help me. If you don't understand God's word, ask Him. Ask Him. Take a book like First John or the Gospel of John and start reading it if, you, if you're not real familiar with it. And ask God, say, God, show me what I need to know from this book because it's a living book. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something somebody made up. It's the very word of God. We need to make sure that we're applying it, that we're growing by it, that we're taking our, our time in it so that it can speak and minister to our hearts. I think that it's important that we, we understand that we're here as a church to live our lives according to this book. We don't set it aside and we don't just bring it out on Sundays. It's a seven-day-a-week, 24-7 thing. Now, are we there can all of us say, oh yeah, I totally know. We don't. Because we're sinners. We're saved by grace. We've got to remember that. We're going to fall. We're going to mess up. We're going to do things that dishonor God. But that's where God's grace comes in. Thank God we're not under the law. We'd all be dead by now. But we're, we live in an age of grace. But that doesn't mean we take God's law and just kind of throw it out the window. Because, I don't know about you, but one day I would love to be in heaven among the great in heaven. I want to have some I'm sorry, you know, corner somewhere. You know, I'm not that that's going to be that way in heaven. I don't know. I mean, but there's going to be some kind of difference. Okay? I want to do everything possible in this life to make sure that I've maximized my potential when I get there. And that's what our, what our desire should be. For His glory, not for own. Not for ours. Let's close in a word of prayer and, and ask the Lord to, to uh, dismiss us with a blessing and song. Father, we thank You this morning that You've called us to honor Your Word. You've called us to teach Your Word. You've called us to live by birth. Lord, I pray that it would have a um, exalted place in our hearts. That we would never desire to do anything personally that would dishonor it or cause to bring shame upon it. Just like we wouldn't want to do something that would cause shame to you or to bring dishonor to you. As Christians, we want to honor our Savior. We want to honor our Lord. And Lord, we know that sometimes we fall short but, Father, we also realize that that's where your grace comes in. We thank you for that grace. Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning who's yet to put their faith in you and taste the grace of God. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who is yet to completely understand that under your law, according to your law, we're all sinners and we all need salvation. We all need to be saved from our sins. And it's only through Jesus Christ who paid the debt for us, who hung on a cross, and we know the story, was raised the third day. It's because of that act that we can be counted as righteous, that you can declare our sin as forgiven. Lord, there's nothing we can do to get rid of it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blot on our lives that will stay there unless Christ removes it. And that's what his word says. His word says that though our sins are as crimson, he'll make them as white as snow. And Father, we, we long for that. 
So I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, I pray that they would be like the tax gatherer who, who cried out to you, be merciful to me, Lord. Lord, that's a prayer that, that you will answer. And we ask that you do that work in their hearts this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I pray you dismiss us with your blessing. Bless the food as we gather over there for fellowship time. Bless our hearts and our, our fellowship as well. In Jesus' name, amen.